Just like podcasts, newsletters are a great way to learn more about history. And that's why I created the History Weekly Newsletter to round up all the best history podcast episodes of the week and break them down just for you. And as a little bonus, I outline a major historical event that occurred each day that week in history. So consisting of four sections, I list major historical events for the week along with accompanying photographs, all the history podcast episodes I listen to, along with their cover art and links, the three best episodes that I listen to, ranked and analyzed, and I finish with a guest recommendation. So if you're looking for a new newsletter to follow and learn even more history, follow the link in the show notes or enter your email at historyweekly.eo.page slash landing. And now, back to the show. It's the early hours of Tuesday, October 18th, 1859. John Brown and the remainder of his crew are holed up in the engine house at Harper's Ferry. Starting off smoothly, the mission has gone awry after a train was allowed to pass through the city and continue on. They then delivered a message to Washington with news of the attack. As he hears Colonel Robert E. Lee speaking outside with his men, he begins reflecting on his decision to initiate the raid. Just as with his first encounter at the Pottawatomie massacre, he did not rush to it suddenly. The chain of events that sparked it all occurred just three years earlier, on May 24, 1856. This is the story of John Brown, and you're listening to To Be a Rebel. This is To Be a Rebel, the podcast that takes you through the lives of real rebels throughout history that have defied unjust authority and stood up for themselves and their beliefs, at times costing them their lives or their reputations, and sometimes both. This is part two of a three-part series on John Brown, the abolitionist icon that orchestrated the Pottawatomie Massacre and led the raid on Harper's Ferry. This episode will focus on the details of these infamous events and the lead-up to his Day of Judgment. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd recommend doing so now to familiarize yourself with the chain of events. Well, howdy there, 2B Rebel fans. I know how much you all love your history, so I thought I'd tell you about another show that I myself enjoy, called The Wild West Extravaganza. The host, Josh, he has a real knack and good voice for storytelling. He explores all the rowdy characters, crazy battles, and major events from the American history period known as the Wild Wild West. So that includes Native American tribes and chiefs, cowboys, outlaws, bandits, sheriffs, you name it, he covers it all. And don't worry, they feature plenty of rebels too. And just like me, Josh strives to be as historically accurate as possible, and he's built a large community to hold him accountable to that. So if you want to learn more about this fascinating part of American history, search for the Wild West extravaganza wherever you're listening now, or hit the link in the show notes. And now... Back to the show. Three and a half years earlier, the first major event of John's abolitionist career begins to take place under a starlit sky. It's the night of May 24th, 1856. John and his crew of men begin approaching the Pottawatomie Creek in Kansas by wagon. John pulls out his journal and map as he points to a house just a ways over the bridge. His original intentions were not revenge but rather to fortify the city of Lawrence after its sack just three days earlier. As they got closer and realized their presence was no longer needed, they took a different route and began looking for those responsible for the attack. Their first stop, the Doyle family. 
They call out James as well as his three sons. James Doyle, come on out. We've got you surrounded. Don't put up a fight now. You'll just make things worse. We've got armed men out here, and it's time for you to pay for what you done did in this great and free state. But his wife pleads with them to spare their youngest son, John, and they oblige. Please, spare my boy, John. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's a youngin. Don't got nothing to do with this. Please. John, being the youngest, was the only one in the household not yet a member of the Law and Order Party, a pro-slavery party that James played a crucial role in. They assisted border ruffians on their incursion into Kansas, among many other things. So after being ordered out of the house to be taken as prisoners, they are soon hacked to death with broadswords by Owen Jr. and Frederick. The next stop, Alan Wilkinson. Alan was a state legislator on a pro-slavery ticket, as well as the town's postmaster, a role which he took advantage of to intercept the mail and newspapers of free staters. Alan Wilkinson, come on out. We know you've been using your postmaster position to spy on our great citizen's mail. We just want to talk. His wife comes to the door first. Please, y'all, I'm ill. Alan's a hard guy. You can't take him. I've got no other young'uns or family to turn to. I beg you. Against his ill wife's pleas, they order him out and hack him with broadswords as well before leaving his body on the side of the road, this time by Henry Thompson and Theodore Weiner. From there, they cross the Potawatomi and reach the cabin of James Harris just after midnight. There are three men inside that are ordered out at Sword Point, John S. Whiteman, Jerome Glanville, and William Sherman. After interrogating them, they allow Whiteman and Glanville back inside, but execute William Sherman for his connection in assisting border ruffians as well as participating in the sack of Lawrence. In the two years prior to the massacre, there had been eight killings in Kansas territory attributable to slavery politics, and none in the vicinity of the massacre. Brown killed five in a single night, and the massacre was the match to the powder keg that precipitated the bloodiest period in bleeding Kansas history, a three-month period of retaliatory raids and battles in which 29 people died. It's two and a half years later in the cold month of December, 1858 in Missouri. John Brown has just snuck into state with plans to liberate slaves and help them escape through the Underground Railroad. Over the last couple years, John has been receiving aid and counsel from the Secret Six, a group of six wealthy and educated white men that have provided him with both financial and personal assistance. They have enabled John to expand his reach and conduct more missions. An official convention was held in Canada earlier in May with them in attendance to adopt an anti-slavery constitution. More than 50 black and white supporters adopted it, but he still felt that action was missing if they were to achieve the goal of ending slavery. On December 19th, John came into contact with a slave by the name of Daniel, who was requesting help to block the sale of the remainder of his family, including his wife who was pregnant. Typically. John did not consider a raid to prevent a single sale worth the trouble. But the day after, he set out with roughly 20 men into Missouri from Kansas. They split into two groups, first going after Daniel's owner, Harvey Hicklin. 
They held him and his family at gunpoint, extracting them from the home and taking some of their possessions to help aid the slaves in their trip north, but managed to spare their lives. Okay, 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 you can have our things, just please don't kill us! Oh, and I'll be taking this too. Help these good folks get back on their feet. We'll be leaving now. Don't bother trying to catch us. They would then go to another plantation, bringing the total number of freed slaves to 11. During this second stop, however, slave owner David Cruz would be killed, though Brown's crew claimed self-defense in an intense altercation. No, you can't have these slaves. These here are my property. You'll have to pry them out of my cold, dead hands. Though Brown's men sustained no casualties, this would not be the end of the trek for them. Next, they would have to journey over 600 miles in the middle of winter to reach freedom in Canada. This was a time of heightened activism for John, having a warrant out for his arrest for the events in Potawatomi, as well as in Missouri, he set out his eyes on an even larger prize, Harper's Ferry, Virginia. There were several reasons that Brown was attracted to Harper's Ferry. It held a vast federal armory with weapons that he could supply to slaves to help them rise up and resist slavery. He also knew it not to be as heavily guarded or secluded as other military bases. So after he got back from bringing the 12 former slaves to Canada, one of which was born on the journey there, he began drawing up plans for a raid on Harper's Ferry that he thought would inspire a general insurrection. He knew the South to be in a constant state of fear and wanted to take advantage. In 1832, Virginia debated implementing abolitionism due to Nat Turner's rebellion. The thought was that if he could recruit even more, he could renew this debate and quite possibly just end it this time. It's July 3rd, 1859. John and his crew of 21 men have just arrived at the Kennedy Farm five miles from Harpers Ferry on the opposite side of the Potomac in Maryland. It was determined that they would rent a place as a disguise to train and store munitions until they were ready to attack. During this time, John went by the alias Isaac Smith and was able to keep a low profile. He even fended off nosy neighbors inquiring about the pikes by explaining that they were meant for mining. These pikes were actually quite infamous, by the way. Their original intention? Inciting a wider rebellion among slaves across all states. Thousands of them were procured but never used. Some would go on to be sold and confiscated as souvenirs. It's the late night hours of October 16th, 1859. John and 18 of his men begin advancing on the town of Harper's Ferry while three stay behind to guard the safe house. Things start out smoothly and they easily capture both bridges and begin cutting the telegraph wires. One of the first hostages taken is Lewis Washington, the great-grandnephew of the famous George Washington. John mostly decided to take him for the symbolism he represented. Through this encounter, he also took possession of a famous pistol passed on from George, gifted by Marquise Lafayette as well as a sword from Frederick the Great. Some of the men began going to nearby plantations to attempt to free slaves, but were unsuccessful. Many of the slaves were confused and did not think that a white man had truly come to save them. Others were fearful that they would be caught and severely punished or killed for leaving. As the day progresses, their fate takes a turn for the worse as a train stops in town. 
Ironically, a free black man who was an attendant came to check why the train was stopped and was shot and killed by Brown's men. Brown then boarded the train to speak to passengers, explaining that he did not intend to harm anyone and allowed them to proceed. Hear ye, hear ye, the name is John Brown. We mean no harm to y'all. You may pass through now. But this would be a tragic mistake as they went on to spread the word of what had happened. And as the bureaucrats in Washington began developing a plan to deploy the military, local militias began showing up as well as nearby townsfolk, some of whom John was able to take hostage in the engine house, which they used for their headquarters during the raid. There were points at which Brown could have escaped unscathed and still made his mark, but he hunkered down. Eventually, Colonel Robert E. Lee was dispatched to the engine house with the Marine unit early the next morning. At around 7 o'clock, Lieutenant Israel Green was ordered to approach Brown and demand his surrender. Alright Brown, we know you're in there now. Come out with your hands up or prepare to be slain! Well, that does it. Man, attention! Charge! After a failed negotiation, the unit was ordered to storm in and they found a ladder which they used as a battering ram. The ladder left a hole just large enough for Lieutenant Green and his men to sneak in through, and he began frantically searching for Brown. Brown was found inside, still with a calm demeanor as always. Green, on the other hand, was furious and leapt at him immediately, sword in hand. Luckily, he was carrying his dress sword instead of a military saber. His first blow struck John right around the belt buckle, but as it bent inward, Green then began slashing at John's face before the rest of the unit came to remove him. Unlike John, his son Watson would not recover from the wounds sustained during capture. Of the original 21 men of this mission, 10 had been killed including two of John's sons Oliver and Watson. Of the black volunteers, two died. Five of the raiders were captured and killed. Two escaped to be captured again later. Five escaped including Owen Jr. and a black volunteer, Osborne Anderson, who fled to Canada. After arresting him and the remainder of his crew, the state of Virginia began preparations for ascendancing, which would take place on November 2nd, 1856. This would set in motion a final judgment day for him, which would continue to flare the tensions as the nation inched ever closer to civil war. Thanks for listening to To Be a Rebel. This has been part two in our three-part series on John Brown, the famous abolitionist icon that orchestrated the Potawatomi Massacre and led the raid on Harper's Ferry. Today we covered these infamous events in more depth and how they led to his ultimate judgment day thereafter. Next week, we'll dive deeper into the aftermath of these events, his day in court, and how he's been perceived over the years. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you told your friends and family about it and gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on all our new episodes covering all of history's rebels. Have an idea for a rebel you'd like to see covered? Email me, david at echofox.media, to have it considered. A quick note on dramatizations. We can't always know exactly what was said, but these depictions are based on historical research. Hosting and production is done by me, David Los. Editing and sound design by Brianna Reese. Historical research for this episode was done by Dr. Paul Burrow. Links to all of our sources used and resources for further reading can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next week. 
And until then, take care.